Philippians 1. Once again, I'll begin reading in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So the last several weeks we've been dealing primarily with verse 21, but uh, we then began to move into 22 and 23 where Paul basically expounds on what he meant um, when he said, for, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, the idea with verse 21 is that is in a sense the essence uh, of a Christian's life, uh, of our motivation, of our goal, the way that we see life and how we are to live and then Paul also describes here a very real dilemma that he finds himself in psychologically. And that is, is that he, he really is ready to leave the earth. He's ready to go. Uh, he wants to be in heaven. He wants to be with the Lord. But the overriding principle for him is that he really wants what God wants. And so he's fairly convinced that God wants him to stay on the earth for a little while longer. And the main reason for that is because of the ministry he's involved in, uh, that he is going to be a big help to these believers as well as many others. When Paul thinks that, remember that he's not thinking that the ministry cannot exist without him. That's not the way that he's approaching it. He's not thinking, I'm just so important, God really needs me here. God doesn't need any of us, much less needing us in any particular place. But we know that, it, that in the plans of God, it pleases God to use us to accomplish his will. And that brings us joy and obviously brings him glory. So it's not wrong for an individual to say or to believe that they are needed in a particular place because of the ministry we provide. That's not a, that's not a sinful outlook. That's not, that's, that's not arrogant. It becomes arrogant when we think that we're the only ones that can do it. Or if we think that it's dependent upon us. It's always dependent upon God. Um, and then along with that, which uh, can be sometimes uh, difficult for some people to handle, and that is, even when it comes to very successful ministries, it's not always the plan of God that ministry continue in the way that it's continued in perpetuity. It, it, it has a shelf life. And it may run through whatever... Uh, years that God desires that ministry to be to, to use, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and then that's it. But there will be other ministries, other things. Um, if, if a ministry lasts for a real long time, that's terrific. But the only institutions that God has, I believe, laid down that he desires to, to go on and on and on, that would be a marriage, and that's limited to this life, and then there's the church. 
Now, that doesn't mean that uh, a local church may not close its doors, because it happens. In fact, in Revelation, uh, Jesus warns a couple of churches that if they don't get their act together, time is coming for that particular church to close. But that doesn't mean that God's left without a witness. All right? Um, but the church, again, is not dependent upon the building. So the church worldwide is going to continue. And countries have tried hard, certain countries have tried hard to wipe out uh, the church, to wipe out, remember when we say the church, we're not talking about Roman Catholicism. It's not that. It's believers. It's the family of Christ. Uh, and, and there's been many attempts to try to wipe out believers. And it's just never worked. Uh, in fact, the most... One of the most intense campaigns against believers did take place in China um, after uh, Mao Zedong took over. Um, and not only did he do his best to rid the country of opium addicts, um, he also did his best to rid it of Christians. And there came a point in time when all the Christian missionaries were kicked out of China. I don't remember what year that was, but what's interesting is that whatever year that took place, Based on approximate numbers, they believed that there were about 50,000 Chinese Christians when that took place. So when Nixon was president and Kissinger was uh, Secretary of State, and the doors were opened uh, so that um, China and America became, in a limited way, economic partners, and there was now a flow of people going back and forth, uh, the church in America was very interested to see what had happened to the believers in China and how the church had fared uh, there because they, they had heard about the intense persecution. And part of that they heard um, because of the uh, individuals who were involved in ministries to basically smuggle Bibles into China. Uh, in fact, what was really cool is um, there was a guy that I knew in Hawaii, that's what, that was, he was an insurance salesman, but he would take trips to China or to Taiwan basically uh, three times a year. And the reason he did that was so he could help smuggle Bibles into China. Um, he would buy these Bibles, and they would figure out ways. It was really kind of cool. So anyway, um, what happened was is when the, when the doors were open and they began to, we began to try to investigate to see what happened to the believers, there were no longer 50,000 believers. There was about, I think, I think it was uh, 50 million, which is phenomenal. All right? Not 500,000, 50 million. Um, and it seems... Uh, throughout church history, that when there is intense persecution, church growth usually tends to really take off. <laughs> it's just kind of amazing how that works. You try to kill the church, and it's almost like people go, wow, look at that. They just killed 10 Christians. What they believe must be true. I'm converted. I mean, they don't say it like that, but it's kind of like that's what happens. Uh, it's pretty amazing, to say the least. So Paul, then, is uh, really going through this dilemma, and what we learn from that is that the reality of heaven really should um, affect the way that we feel, the way that we live, uh, the way that we approach life. Um, and that's why then again we can say and we can handle whatever comes our way because for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. So with that in, in mind, think of this. A Christian is immortal until his work on earth is done. Now, all of us have been called to, to, I guess you would say, a work, whatever that work is. Um, so I, that doesn't mean that if you are a pastor or a missionary, this is true for you. It's true for all believers. So your work, 
Uh, you are to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. You may not always know everything as, as far as what that is. But the work that God, that God has called all of us to do is obviously, number one, to influence other people. All right? So if you, if you are a parent, you have kids, God clearly desires you to influence your children for the Lord. That's what he wants. If you're still alive and your kids get married, then he wants to influence your grandchildren for the Lord. The people that you meet, whether it's at your job, people in your neighborhood, wherever it is, that's the work God's called us to do. Other believers that we meet with, that we can encourage them, and maybe they can encourage us to grow, that's the work that God's called us to do. So we're all called to do a, a work, whatever that is. So don't think that it's only certain things like, well, I build homes for the homeless. That's great. But it's not, that's not what this is. It's, it's much broader than that, and in one sense, even more important than that, because it all is centered on really the work of the gospel. So... As an individual, then, you are immortal. Nothing can kill you uh, before your appointed time is. And, and God is the one who knows that appointed time. Yes, ma'am? Are you saying we're mortal? Immortal. Well, immortal. No, we are immortal until. So there's an end point. In other words, you cannot die until the work that God's called you to do is finished. And, of course, he's the one that determines when that is, not us. Uh, I think Paul is the only one that I know of, who basically finished early. <laughs> uh, you, you read that with several commentaries. They'll talk about Paul basically saying, well, I'm kind of done, and I'm waiting, and you know, I guess there's some more to do, but you know, he was just kind of ready to go. So the idea is, again, is you cannot be killed, and obviously until uh, whatever the work that God's given you is finished. But again, we may not always know what that, all that work is. Uh, remember I told you the story last week, I think it was last week, of the guy who was supposed to die and he lived nine more years. Well, there are some things he needed to get done that he didn't know, uh, and the Lord used him in terrific ways in, in Thailand. Uh, so that's the truth that, that we can have. So even though I'm afraid of flying, and I don't like to fly, and it really bothers me to fly, and I try to avoid flying, I will get on a plane, but I do think a lot about a lot of theology who God is, God's will, God's sovereign, all those things. And what I know is, is that if it's not my time and the plane crashes, I'm going to live. Yeah. All right? But I also know this. If it is my time, the plane can make it safely, but I won't make it. All right? So, uh, but it's in God's hands. So there's nothing to worry about, even though I still grip the seat, you know, or Cindy's hand, whatever is there. You know, white knuckle it. <laughs> all right? So again, a Christian is immortal until his work on earth is done. Death cannot touch us until God is through with us. Why? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, which is basically uh, the word masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when we do good for others, uh, that was uh, an opportunity created by God for you, to do what you did on his behalf. Uh, and that's really pretty cool, to say the least. So when we have walked in the good works that he's prepared up for us from the foundation of the world, he will then say to us, either son or daughter, it's time to come, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's what we want to hear uh, from the Lord. Some, I was listening to a discussion one time, and there was, it was a question and answer period. And there was a young person who, he's kind of a, I guess he was kind of a punk, um, and so he was asking the pastor, he goes, well, whoop-de-doo, what, kind of what kind of reward is that? You just want God to say, well done, you know? I mean, he was just kind of 
acting up. So the way that this is illustrated is true. If you've ever been around small kids or you had small kids, you know, because you had children, uh, normally, until they reach a certain age, the most important opinion in their life is yours. And they want your approval more than anyone else's. They, they desperately want you to say to them that you're proud of them. They want you to say to them that you're happy for them. That makes their day, right? Uh, doesn't matter. Their friends can say that. Others can say that. And they like that. But you know how devastating it can be when you say to them, I'm ashamed of you, you know, or whatever, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I'm not saying you should never say that to your kid, just saying that you need to be measured uh, and very specific when you say things uh, of that nature. Because they are usually very sensitive uh, to that, and we do want to use that to help train them. But again, the idea is, is that when they hear from us those positive remarks, it helps to establish in a much deeper level uh, psychological stability in their life and emotional stability. Um, and so, in the same way, when we hear from our Father, well done and good and faithful servant, that really, that's a big deal. And we, we do want to hear. Remember, only everything you have comes from God. That's all. Including the breath you take. Every moment of happiness in your life is from God. Every moment of sadness that you had in life, God was there to help you through it. Whether you were aware of it or not. Every single bit of it. Um, so we only owe him everything. And he doesn't lord that over us. But it's right and proper, not only for us to be grateful, but then also to be so in tune with him that we then experience this great sense of satisfaction and really deep happiness uh, upon hearing that. So looking at verses 25 and 26 of Philippians 1, Paul again says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith. So even though he has this dilemma, he knows he's going to live a little while longer. He knows that. That's what he says. He's convinced of it. And he's going to remain because it's for their benefit. They're going to continue to progress in their walk with the Lord. He says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So the idea of that basically is this, is because Paul is so instrumental in being used by God to help them to grow in Christ, they are glorifying Christ because of Paul. You know, they would say, I'm so grateful that I know this man. This man has helped me so much to know God, to understand God, to live for, you know, we have that kind of relationship. And so he's, he knows that, and he wants them to experience that kind of happiness, um, and he wants them to be able to actually glory in the Lord because of what he's doing for them. And then when he comes to see them again, obviously there's going to be just, you know, again, they're going to have this great joy because of the relationship of this. So when he says that he's convinced of this, basically what he's saying is, is he is persuaded that his remaining earthbound is necessary for the Philippians. All right, so again, that's not, he's not being arrogant, but it's necessary. Right now, there's no one else to care for their soul that loves them like Paul does. And so uh, he's going to, he gratefully wants to do that. The, the, the word there, so that, um, uh, is, a, is a Greek word 
which basically means that he has a clear purpose. So Paul continues to serve the Philippian church. It's not the only church he's serving, but he continues to serve the Philippian church. And again, it would be for the purpose of causing their proud confidence in him, again, to abound in Christ Jesus through his coming to them again. So in the Greek text, the phrase, in Christ Jesus, precedes the phrase, in me. Uh, And so that's the order that Paul had in mind. So basically, in order that your proud confidence may abound in Christ Jesus as he is seen in me. That's really what he wants. Um, He wants the Lord to get the glory and the credit. So it's a big difference between Paul and sometimes what we see going on in maybe certain ministries um, in Western countries primarily. It's not the only place it happens where the main concern people have is them. People are appreciating them kind of a thing. Um, uh, they want their name to be associated with whatever, whether, whether you put it on a building or whatever it happens to be. Um, there are, just so you know, there are several, it's primarily men, but not only men, there's, there's several men that have huge ministries that are very humble and, and doing terrific work. There's also others that it's not so good. Um, and uh, it's all about them and so that can be very problematic. Sometimes it's problematic. You may not be aware of it or see it, uh, but it's seen, in a sense, kind of behind the scenes in the way they treat people that are in ministry with them, the way they treat staff, the way they treat others that work with them, that kind of thing. Um, but the bottom line is, is that Paul really has this focus on the Lord and serving him, and that's really all that he cares about. And so the idea, again, is Jesus working in him that would cause the Philippian believers proud confidence to abound. So moving on in verses 27 through 30, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now as we go on, I want you to think uh, in in two ways about the passages that we're reading. Normally what happens when we read through this, we're we're always thinking in terms of the individual. And that's not bad because it does apply to the individual believer. But Paul is writing to a church. It's a group. He wants them as a group. So let your manner of life as a body of believers. So again, the application is obviously okay and it does apply to us as individuals. We want our manner of life to be worthy of the gospel. So those are appropriate questions. But again, the Christian life is always lived in the community. It's lived with other believers. Paul stresses in Philippians, and he also stresses this in the book of Ephesians, the unity that we have within, in Christ. And remember that uh, when you read the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places, the unity that we have as believers serves as a platform that's used by God to convince others that God actually sent Christ. It's a strange connection in a sense, but, the, but, I, but I, I think it's partly this. True unity among a diverse group of individuals is a rare thing. And the unity that we have is not just contrived, and it's not only based on uh, some kind of purpose in the sense of, we want to build a big church, or we want, to, we want to build more homes, or we want to feed the homeless. All those things are okay. But the idea is, is that we are a 
a group, a congregation of transformed people that have been transformed because of Christ, and all of the natural divisions that take place between any group of people are overcome in the church. So that doesn't mean that we're not going to have disagreements, but we're going to be able to overcome those disagreements in a very different way than the world. In other words, we don't, we don't want to take our ball and go home. We want to go through the hard things and work it out. We're willing to, or should be willing to forgive. Um, uh, and, and again, the diversity in the church, in one sense, is even greater than diversity you see in other places because a lot of us really don't have a whole lot in common. I mean, we would not, if we were out there looking for a group to associate with, whatever group we would associate with, you might not be a part of that group because we just, we don't have a whole lot in common in that sense. But that's okay, because we have the Lord, there's actually a, a, a closer unity, a, a more genuine unity that's brought about by the Lord that's also transforming us as individuals, but also us as a group. So we want to think in terms of all of this then, uh, primarily as a group of believers that he's writing to, and how they are to think about these things, as well as individuals. Um, again, the, the local church uh, is really vitally important. Uh, to the work of the Lord. That is the institution he's established uh, to carry on his work uh, in a community, in a nation, or, you know, wherever. Um, and each, and that's why there's all these churches in all these places. Uh, because all these churches are doing the same thing, same basic kinds of things uh, in trying to do the work of the Lord. So verse 27, we'll take that by itself. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So the word only conveys the idea of the one essential thing, all right? So he's saying the one essential thing is your manner of life. Um, he's focusing attention on the next few words, which begins with your manner of life. Weist, uh, to, just so you know, that's a, it's an old set of Greek word studies, which um, is really excellent. Uh, I know a lot of pastors who have that, and they've never opened it, which is to their detriment. Um, and it, it's becoming more expensive to get, but if you can never come across it, it's where we're, it's, it is well worth having. Uh, the individual is an expert in the Greek language, but you don't have to know Greek to read it, and it's not overly technical at all. He breaks down the Greek, uh, so it serves kind of like an exegetical commentary on several books of the Bible. Not all of them, just, it's just a few New Testament ones. Um, but it really is excellent. He does Romans, Mark. Uh, I think he does the most of the epistles. You know, First, Second Peter, and James, and First John. Um, but there's just a lot of really good, rich things in there. If you're looking for maybe a more substantial devotional to do on your own, I'm not a real big fan of most devotions. Um, but if you if you're looking for a substantial devotional, um, one that's more that's meatier, um, then that would be a a good set to get, and it'll last you the rest of your life. Uh, and then you would take like one of the books he covers and then you begin to read that book and then you read his basically his commentary or his study on the Greek language in, ex in explaining and expounding what's being said. And I promise you that you that when you finish each of those books of the New Testament, you will know so much more and a lot of it will stick in your head. Um, and it's, it's just I can't really uh, impress that enough upon you. If I had more sets. I would sell them at a discount to get them in your hands, uh, but I don't have them. Um, and so uh, if you ever want to get, I think now it's, 
it used to be like $45, then it was $65. I think now it's 100 uh, So you got it, but it's worth it. So it's called Wiest Word Studies. It's a, it's a four, W, uh, it's German. It is W-U-E-S-T. It's Kenneth Wiest. So here's the deal uh, that I'll make with you. So if you order that set and you begin to read it, and you say, I have no idea why Bob has recommended this book. This, I'm getting nothing out of this. Then I will pay you what you paid for it, and you can give it to me. I'll buy it from you. What if everybody does that? We're going to be broke. <laughs> no, they won't. No, they won't. I'll, because I'll find... Well, you didn't let me finish. I'll find a spiritually hungry Christian who will buy it back. So... <laughs> 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 so anyway, yeah, <laughs> but uh, W uh, W U E S T. It's Weist, Kenneth Weist. Um, well, it's West with the U, yeah. Huh? Yeah, that's all. All that is is just the new, where he's he has his own translation. That's all that is. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't, you have to now listen, when you do, whenever you buy a multi-volume book, especially Christian, on any of these websites, you got to be very careful, because the wording will be Kenneth Weist Word Studies, four-volume set. That's what it's called, and then it'll say thirty-five ninety-five. You go, wow, this is so great, and then you order it, and you only get one volume, because if you read it more carefully, it's only selling you either volume one or volume two. Now that's okay. You know, if, you, if you're going to pick it up a volume at a time, that's not a bad thing. You can do that. Um, you know, buy one volume and then later on, if you can find the next one, do it that way. But just, you know, be careful because uh, I was at one time looking for a set of Francis Schaeffer in hardback. And it was, it's, nowadays it's 800, 900 bucks. So I said, there's just no way I'm going to get that. And I came across one and it said $100. And I go, this is great. And, but it's not, they're all, well, you, you sometimes is even more expensive. You can try, but uh, what, I have, what I found so far is with the Weiss Worst Studies, they're no cheaper. But if they are, grab it. Um, so, anyway, it's just, it's just a really valuable, uh, easy to use, but very meaty. It's kind of hard to find that um, in, um, in books today. And... Uh, uh, if, if, you ever, if you ever get it and you have had any problem understanding any of it, just let me know and I'll just show you because it's very simple to, uh, to grasp. And I'm pretty sure that you'll get it. So, so it's not uh, uh, going to be difficult for you to be able to use it. It's just a four volume. And volume four is just his translation. So there's really only three volumes. Uh, I think volume four is both uh, the translation and then he does actual where he just has like one page. Uh, he'll do, uh, like, let's say he does 90 Greek words. And so there's one page, and he explains that one Greek word just by itself. Uh, the other, the first three volumes, you work your way through a book of the New Testament. And he explains it basically verse by verse. Uh, or, <sighs> that's a lot of money. Yeah. So anyway. Who? Yeah. Well, there you go. It's already gone to 50 bucks. Well, my thing, if you're going to spend 150 bucks, you better use it. <laughs>
Uh, all right, so uh, back to what Wiest was going to say about this, uh, which is the word uh, or the phrase, only let your manner of life. He says, the idea of only is this. Since my only reason for remaining on earth is for your progress in the Christian life. That's what he means by only. All right, that's what he's explaining to, these, to, the, to the Philippians when he writes to them. So their need of his ministry is the only reason for his wishing to remain on earth. So now he's not doing that to make him feel guilty. Okay, because we saw earlier when we were going through the early parts of chapter 1, we know that Paul really is very close to a lot of these individuals. So, there's, so he loves them, they're very close friends, and they love him. So when he says this, it's not a guilt trip. Saying, well, because of you, I don't get to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Um, he just wants them to know that he is so committed to their growth that he's gladly doing this. But this is the reason. He's not going to lie about it. This is the reason why I'm staying. I'm staying for you. Uh, and sometimes I think that what, that what what that produces in us is if you have someone that you admire and you're also very close to, and they tell you the only reason I'm staying is to help you do such and such and such and such, you're probably going to put even more effort into the such and such and such and such because of the relationship with that person. That's kind of, so it's a way of motivating that individual uh, to kind of, you know, get on the stick uh, kind of a thing. Because uh, sometimes, you know how we are, we're like, well, you know, I wasn't going to do this, but because you asked me, I will. Uh, and that's okay. Um, so that's not really, it's not manipulation, right? But he is seeking to motivate them uh, to... Uh, to, to do the right thing and to really be involved and, and move forward in their lives as Christians, which they've been doing. Uh, so he's not scolding them, but he wants them to continue and not, not lose heart or lose their focus. So again, uh, because uh, their need of his ministry is the only reason for his wishing to remain on earth, it behooves the Philippian saints to receive that ministry with an open heart and to obey his spirit-given exhortations and to grow in their Christian experience. And so the rest of the letter that we read has to do with the spiritual needs of these saints uh, and what Paul wants them to do, do about it. So when he says only that your manner of life or your conduct or conduct yourselves, this is a command. So one of the things that's helpful uh, in the Bible is to, is to know where the imperatives are. So an imperative uh, is a command. So in the Greek language, um, in the New Testament, when you, when you, if you're ever using a book that uses the Greek or talks about the Greek, whenever they say this phrase is an imperative, it's a command. So it's not just a suggestion or this is a good idea. Um, it's a, and because it's the Word of God, even though Paul is saying it, it's a command from God. Um, there are approximately 800 imperatives in, in the New Testament. Um, and I do think someone's made a list. I'm not sure. It's, it's probably not the best way to study the imperatives because it can become overwhelming. Um, but remember that all the imperatives that we're given, God has promised to help us to obey those. This is not just you obey and if you don't, you're out. Right? He is going to help us. If you remember the illustration I've used before, I began to use it in jail. And that's the idea where if I bless your life by giving you a home that's fully furnished, always has groceries, always has two cars in the garage, there's always gas, there's, you have a pool, you can use the house for the rest of your life, you can do whatever you want in it, there's only one condition, it has to remain immaculate. No. And, if, and if it's not immaculate, 
then it, when I come and I check on that house and it's not immaculate, then 12 angry men are going to come and drag you out of the house and beat the living daylights out of you and throw you in the street. So then the question is, would you enjoy the house? Well, by the way, it's five bedrooms and five bathrooms. There's no way, right? But if the same offer is made and the same condition, it has to be immaculate. But when I show up unannounced and I find dirt, I help you clean it. There's, there's, no, there's no 12 angry men. I help you clean it. Now the danger is what? The danger you may face is it doesn't matter. I can just let the house fall apart. When he, if he comes, he's going to help me to do it. And of course, that would be disrespectful to me as one who's giving you this great gift. And so, but there's still a human danger. So in our lives as believers, we have all these commands, but we know that God is, is going to help us to obey them. But that then doesn't mean that we can become lazy and undisciplined and all the rest. That would be disrespectful and all the rest. Uh, but the good news is, is that it's not fully dependent upon the flesh. Because we can't do these things on our own. It's, it is impossible. So on one hand, God is asking us to do what we can't do. But he is asking us what we can do in his strength. And so again, that interdependence that we've talked before about uh, in our relationship with Christ is so important. Uh, why that needs to be cultivated. So we are then able to have the right attitudes and behaviors and all the rest that God wants us to have. So... Uh, that's what's important about an imperative. So here, when he says, only let your manner of life, or, let, or, or you need to conduct yourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel, that's a command of God to you. So we, do, so we should never take those things lightly uh, as just, that's just great information, and then move on. Uh, the idea with the scripture is that we immerse ourselves in it. It becomes a part of us, the way we think, the way we approach life, uh, and what have you. So again, it's a command, it's an imperative, uh, it's in the present tense, so you don't have to remember this because any good commentary that uses Greek would tell you this, but present tense means that it's continuous. So the idea is this is, this is to continuously be my approach to life. All right? The command of God is not, he's not saying let your, you know, only let your life be worthy of the gospel for the next 20 years, All right? or only in certain moments, it's, it's for the rest of your life. Um, but again, some, again, if, if, because of our American culture, we do tend to look at commands, and even ones that are difficult, we tend to view them very negatively, and, and maybe even very cynically. So we want to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to do that. God is not doing this because he wants to be our boss. He is our boss, but he's not doing this because he wants just to be bossy. All right? This is really what is best for us, and if we, as we live right, it brings glory to God. God being glorified is good for us, right? Because his blessings flow on us because he's being glorified. Remember, he sustains the entire universe. All of the things that you learn in science work because God just exists. If he didn't exist, then there would be no such thing as a law of gravity because it wouldn't work. The planet would not be spinning at the right speed. It would be out of control. All right? There would not be life on this planet if God didn't exist. Right? Because there's you know, evolution. There's no such thing as that. It doesn't exist. Um, it all, but it all is taking place not because God is thinking it and juggling the whole universe. His power is so great, he doesn't have to think about it. It just is. He just is. And because he is, all these things happen. And so... Um, and we want to remind ourselves of, those, of that type of thing 
when it comes to God because we can easily tend to think of him in the terms of just being a human being but who's just really great. And he's, he's beyond that. And even though Jesus uh, did come in the flesh, he is, he's the perfect God-man. Not just the perfect man. He's the perfect God-man. Um, again, he holds the universe together just by the word of his power. Um, again, if you go back to the, the beginning of Genesis, remember how he created most things. He just spoke. So that's why whenever you watch a great magician, what we all know is a magician is just an illusionist. He's making you, he makes you think he's doing something. Because if he was a true magician, he then could just speak something into existence. No one can do that. It'd be really cool to be able to do that. You know? I'm going to perform in front of the Academy of Magicians, and I'm going to freak them out. Because <laughs> I have real power. <laughs> they will never be able to figure out my trick, because it's not a trick. Uh, but anyway. Uh, now, this is, now, when he says you're, uh, um, only let your manner of life or, or conduct yourselves, not only is it an imperative, and not only is it present tense, there's another uh, aspect of the Greek language, uh, which is, and this is called the middle voice. So what that means here, and, this, and that's what you'll get from like Weiss word studies, he's going to explain those terms, and then not only what they mean, but then going back to the verse, then what does that mean for my understanding of the verse? So when I read, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, I know that's a command, I know that's to be my continuous attitude in all of life, and because it's middle voice, it means that the, Philippians, the Philippian believers must initiate the action of proper conduct themselves, and participate in the results. So this is not the idea that they then just sit and wait for God to make something happen. You do it. Okay? So I, I need to be consciously aware of how I am to live, and then I am to pursue that. that that's, that's what's going on. So when you see uh, Christians uh, evaluating their life and asking themselves, uh, so what do I need to do, or what can I do, so that, so that I will either grow closer to the Lord or live in greater obedience, or be of greater service to God, th they're doing this, okay? And, and, then we, so, and then if you organize your life, you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write out a schedule that I'm going to keep so I can make sure that I spend a certain amount of time with the Lord. That, that's a good thing. Now, eventually, if you do that all the time, you won't even need to have it written down anymore. But the idea is, is you are doing that because you are taking the initiative, all right, to begin some course of action to improve your life for the sake of the Lord. You can also do that maybe in serving others, right? So you, so you obviously become aware as you grow as a Christian that um, uh, you say, you know, I've, I've, just, I've never gone out to eat or invited a person to my home ever. I've never done it as a believer. And so you say, you know what? I don't have a lot of money. But I can either invite someone to my house once a month, like on a Sunday, just so we can have some fellowship and eat together, or maybe I can even take them out once a month, but you intentionally plan to do something like that, and then you look around the church, and what you should do is, so you don't say, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite John and Pam, because we get along really good. Well, you guys already know each other. Pick someone else, all right? It's not a slight on them, but the idea is, is look around for someone who, you say, hmm. I see, I see Nick. No one ever takes Nick out. 
What's wrong with him? No. <laughs> All right? But so you decide that that, so you say, Lord, and Lord uh, I want to take Nick. Oh, I just realized he's got, what, 33 children now. He's got a bunch of kids, so that's going to take more money. I may have to wait an extra month. But you know what, Lord, help me to come up with something cheap. They can come to my house and we can just whatever. But again, you're intentionally doing that, all right, because you want your life to be worthy of the gospel. That's the idea. Um, and so all of that would kind of come under that umbrella. All right, so we want to make sure that we are, that we are then taking the initiative to make sure that that happens. The, the phrase or the wording manner of life is the idea that the conduct of the saints weigh as much as the character of Christ. That's, that's what he's getting at. All right, remember, that the gospel is all about who Christ is and what he's done. Those two things are inseparable. So I want my life then to be weighty. I want my life then to be, in a sense, it's never going to be of equal value. We're not, you know, this isn't a money exchange. But the idea is that, that my, my life, the way I live my life, represents well the character of who, of who Jesus is. That's kind of the idea. There was a story of a guy once. He was uh, um, a very, in one sense, a simple man. He was, he was a, uh, a businessman. He had a very small business in this town. This is back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, so he was, he, but he was only middle class. Uh, he went to the same church uh, for most of his life. He was a faithful Christian. He served as a deacon. Um, he didn't have... He didn't have the ability to teach Sunday school, so he never did any of those types of things. He was always helping other people. And one of the other things he did was he was always giving people rides to church. And, and that would be whoever wanted one, whoever needed one. He would just do that. Not a big deal. But then one day, um, his, you know, it came time where he had to get a brand new car. And so he ended up getting a brand new, I mean, brand new car, right, just almost straight from the factory, and, which is not a sin. He was really happy with his new car. I mean, it was just like, it was awesome. And the very first week, he's picking up some kids for church. And one of them vomited all over the back, back seat, which was cloth seats. And the, it was carpeted. And, you know, that's the smell that doesn't go out like right away. And so there was a couple of people who felt really bad for him. And so one of them said, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And then the other person said, yeah, I guess you don't really want to pick up kids anymore. And he goes, oh, no, I'm just glad we got, got it out of the way right away. <laughs> you know, he just, he just said, hey, I, he, he cleaned it out. And he said, I'm going to rub some coffee grounds in. And he said, it'll be around for a while. He said, but that's okay. He says, because the car belongs to the Lord. He says, I love it, but it belongs to the Lord. And if the Lord wants kids to vomit in it, that's what's going to happen. And so he was, but, you know, because some people would freak out. They would say, that's it. No more. Someone else can pick up these, you know, brats, you know, whatever. So, uh, again, we want to, so again, in a very, as he lived a very simple life, he truly had just, he'd given himself to the Lord, and that's just how he viewed life. Um, and he was, you know, that's how you live stress-free. When they puke in your new car, and you don't lose it, you know. Huh? Yeah, right. Someone dents your car. Yep, absolutely. It just takes all that newness away, and then you're good. Because you always want to protect it, you know. You always, you always park away from everybody else, and, you know. And you, or you park in between only two nice cars, you know. Because if they park next to a junker, they'll, you know, bang your car. And then once you get that little scratch or dent, ah, whatever. You just <laughs> park wherever you want to. 
Anyway, so again, this idea is that you want your conduct to weigh as much as the character of Christ. So the Philippian saints uh, were to see to it that their manner of life weighs as much as the gospel they profess to believe. And that kind of goes back to the idea that we all represent Christ wherever we go, for good or for bad, and we want our lives to um, uh, point to the power and the goodness of the gospel. Okay, that's what it is. So we're polite to other people. We're nice. To, why? Because of the gospel. Now, again, remember, we've all, I always, we always want to go to this one, go, go at least one direction a little bit, which is we know none of us are perfect. But also what the gospel means then is when I blow it and I'm rude to someone or I mean or whatever it is, I then am able to ask them to forgive me. Why? For the cause of Christ. And so that's important. Make sure we do that. Uh, just a simple apology. Uh, whether you say my bad, whatever it is. My bad. Um, we just want to make sure that, uh, that, that we're able to do that. All right, so verse 27 again. I hear, I may hear of you, uh, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So think of it this. What if everyone in a church was living the way that Paul just stated in just that one verse? If everybody was doing that. I've, I've not, some of you heard the story. It's a true story. It happened here at this church. This is pre-COVID. Um, you, you, know, you know how we used to always identify before 9-11. Now it's pre-COVID, post-COVID. Anyway, so it's pre-COVID. We used to, you know, we had, at one time we had like sometimes 90 different kids coming to Iwana because uh, the trailer park down here, or mobile home estates, whatever you want to call it, it was a diff, different demographic and a lot of kids coming from there, which is terrific. But there's one kid who came all the time uh, he had been coming for a couple of years, and uh, so I was, I was talking to him one day, and um, I think what we did was we had a, a little video camera, and so I was going around asking kids about why they like to come, and I wanted to, I just wanted to, I wanted to hear it. I was going to show it to everybody, because a lot of people who don't come on Wednesdays, they didn't know all that was going on with the kids, and then we wanted them to be able to see not only what was going on, but then to hear from some of the kids themselves. Of course, we have no idea what they're going to say. Uh, so, you know, uh, that was, it was a little bit of a risk. So there's this one, one little kid, he's kind of small for his age. I can't remember his name, but I asked him, I said, so, I said, you like coming here? Oh, he, he loved it. And he said how much he loved the Wanas and, and did all that. And, uh, I'm trying to remember how I phrased the question, but I asked him, uh, um, why he liked it so much. And this is what he said. Everybody here is so nice to me. So I asked him. I said, oh, I said, well, well what do you mean by that? You know, because it seemed like he was thinking of something specific. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, so he said, well, he said, it, he said like this, it happened two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, huh. Well, Janice hasn't said a word to me, so this is going to be good. He said, it happened two weeks ago. And what it was, he had gotten his dinner, and he was... Uh, going to get a drink, and he kind of tripped out onto his own feet, and his food just went everywhere. And he said at that moment, and he's just a little fourth grade kid, he said he was cringing, waiting for people to yell at him. And he said nobody did. He said several people came over right away. Two other people began to clean the mess up before he could even think of doing that. Someone else came with their arm and their shoulder and said, come with me, we'll get you another plate. And then, and then when they got the plate, they said, hey, well, I'll carry this for you, and you go get your drink. And I'll wait for you, tell me where you're sitting. And so he kind of goes through this whole thing. And 
I'm just amazed at this very simple story, which to him meant the world. Um, and then, of course, as I got to know him a little better through the next several weeks, you know, I heard that, you know, at his home, you know, there's not a whole lot of really nice talk. There's a lot of screaming and yelling. He wasn't beat or anything, but it was just, you know, people just didn't talk nice to each other. And there's always screaming and yelling. And the only adults he knew, <coughs> which were the ones that lived in his home, and then at school, they were always upset and mean. Because, you know, kids were always acting up. But here, to him, it was just an unbelievable dis uh, a, a, a difference. And so he just, he liked just being here because of that. He said this, he said, and then he said at the end, he goes, it just makes me feel really good. And I, mean, I thought that was great. All right, so that's the idea. So, so here's the thing. So without, and that wasn't planned. You know, we didn't have a, you know, we didn't have a, a meeting with everybody who's at the church that says, okay, now this is what we do in situation one. And this is what we do in situation two. You know, we didn't have that. It was just people being who they are as Christians. And when that took place, bingo. And the impact it had on that young man was incredible. Um, and so that's kind of the idea is, is even though we can have a very strong impact, you as an individual can have a very powerful impact on an individual. Collectively, uh, our impact together can be overwhelming. Um, I'll end with this real quick because we've got to stop. But uh, if you've ever met uh, Nepo, Napoleon Martin, um, he's uh, been a believer for several years now, great guy. If you hear him explain to you how he became a Christian, it was through several different people. He began to work at a bakery. At that bakery uh, were two sisters, Kendra and Savannah, and my daughter, Jessica, was there. Um, they all became friends as they worked together every day. Um, began to talk. He ended up being invited to a Bible study. He came to a Bible study. I was teaching the Bible study uh, every other Thursday night for young adults. Uh, so I met him. Uh, then after a while, he started coming to Sunday school and church. Still not saved. Um, and then started coming to a bunch of stuff. And um, he, you know, sometimes, that never happened with me. But then when you get to the bakery uh, each morning, you talk to Savannah and Jess, they would, they would talk about what had been said. And then he started to argue. You know, it wasn't right, it was wrong, or whatever his ideas were. And of course, they'd say, you're crazy, that's not even logical. And he was getting, he was, when I say frustrated, not in a bad way, but he was getting frustrated because he began to realize the fact that what he thought he knew he didn't know, what he said he believed, contradicted itself with other things he said he believed, and it was just a mess, and his life just wasn't working. And eventually, he, and, and he said to me when we talked, it was like after a while, he was actively fighting against the truth, and he knew he was. And one day, basically, the way that he looked at his conversion when we talked on the phone was he just kind of just gave in. Just I mean, it was, he goes, I, I believe all that. I know it's true. It was just amazing. So who did God use? Everybody. He used the, the young ladies at the bakery. He used me and then the people at the Bible study. And then when he came here, he met different people. That, he met all these different people, all pretty much thinking the same thing, doing the same thing, loving the same thing. And so as all this kind of went on, the Lord was using all those things in his life, and he ended up becoming a believer. And then he ended up marrying one of the girls from the bakery. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, the Lord did all kinds of things. And he came from a home where... It was a mishmash of things. He's got a large family. Uh, 
His, he said that his family was so disruptive. They had, and, the, and the mom took him to church, but there was not a whole lot of discernment. Because they went to the Mormon church for a while, and they went to the Catholic church for a while, and they went to all these different churches. And I guess that at, 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 within a certain number of weeks at each of these churches, they were asked to leave. <laughs> I guess they were kind of rambunctious. Uh, but anyway, but the mom, she was trying, you know. Uh, but man, you're getting exposed to all that stuff. And you've got no way to even filter that and figure out what's true and what's not true. Mercy sakes. And, then, and he was raised up in Atlanta. Then he ends up down here. And he's going to Savannah State. Um, majoring in math, which is great, I think, because you can't major in math if you don't think logically. Because math is logic. And because of that, that I think the Lord used that. He could see that there was a lack of logic in the way he was thinking. And of course, the ladies at the bakery kept pointing that out to him. Uh, but then as he read the Bible, you can see it in the Bible. It's all over the place. It was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, so we want to make sure we keep that in mind as we think about this, and then our connectedness as believers, and then the impact we collectively have without even trying, not organizing that, you don't have to. It's just be who you are in Christ, and the impact will be amazing, and the Lord may use it to absolutely revolutionize the life of an individual, and he will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness to us, and again, for the people you've used in our lives to affect us, both be before we became believers and then afterwards. And so, Father, we just want to thank you for that, and thank you, Lord, for just how you work in, in, in really in amazing ways, and sometimes we would say mysterious ways, because we just don't see how all these things can connect until they do. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to think about what's written here in, in the book of Philippians, that we would meditate on it, and that we would strive to live in compliance to what it says. I ask now that you keep us safe as we go home, and that, Father, you would bless us and allow us to come back safely Sunday that we may worship you together. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.